The first reading is taken from Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10, and can be found on page 719. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, which can be found on page 976 of your church Bible, chapter 11 of Matthew, beginning with verse 1, 1 to 6. It's entitled, Jesus and John the Baptist. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just as we stand, let's bow our heads for a prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to say, as a result of being here this morning with the psalmist, I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. We thank you for your promise of giving us everything that we need in the Lord Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen. Do please be seated. I don't know if you ever fantasize about the dream place to live. 
perhaps the perfect holiday. Maybe you're already booked in to the ideal home exhibition later on this month in Olympia. Or perhaps you're the kind of person who pours over the travel section of the Sunday papers or the property section. Where would you like to live? Would it be a parched urban landscape devoid of green and trees and sunlight? Or would it be a rural idyll with lush pastures, rolling hills and a bubbling stream in the garden? Where would you like to live? Would it be a land of deprivation and poverty, homelessness and sickness, where the rich get richer and the poor poorer and nobody cares? Or would you prefer to live in a place of peace and security, surrounded by happy family and friendly neighbours? Where would you like to live? Well, we know what we want. It's a no-brainer. We also know that this dream world is just that, a dream. So, in our current situation, we settle down to make the best of what we've got. Always anxious about what might be round the corner. Uncertainty, unemployment, sickness, family breakdown, bereavement. You could be 19 or you could be 90 or anywhere in between this morning. But we all live with that balance of dreams and disappointment. And then we come to church and we read Isaiah chapter 35, this wonderful picture of God's perfect world, and we ask ourselves, does this chapter, written 2,700 years ago, does it have anything to say to 21st century London? Or is it just pie in the sky? Or might it just have the answers to the deepest problems of the human heart? The context of Isaiah 35 is pretty bleak. In the previous chapter, chapter 34, we read of the overthrow of Edom being predicted. Edom under the judgment of God. Edom was the neighboring country to the southeast of Israel, constantly hostile to God and his people. And they are sort of representatives of all those who stand against God. And Isaiah chapter 34 is awesome in its grim description of judgment. In the following chapter, chapter 36, Israel is under the cosh from the Assyrians again as they march on Jerusalem. And here in the middle, in today's passage, chapter 35, we have this amazing prediction that God is going to bring to fruition the deepest longings of the human heart. You might find it helpful to have it open in front of you. Verse 4 is a key verse. This is page 719, Isaiah chapter 35. Verse 4 is a key verse. Do you see? Your God will come. He will come to save you. It needs a power much greater than ours to change our lives and our circumstances and our environment. And the Bible's message here in the Old Testament is, your God will come. And the Bible's message in the New Testament is, he has come. He has come to save. 
and he will come again. In short, the message of the Bible from beginning to end is summed up in one word, salvation. And this glorious chapter in Isaiah, chapter 35, is a sort of high point halfway through this great book of Isaiah. And it sums up the joy of the believer when they know that they've been saved. So how does Isaiah describe the joy of God's saved people? Well, he begins by giving us three pictures of salvation. And if you'd like to follow where we're going, on the back of this blue notice sheet, there's there's an outline of today's sermon. So we're looking, first of all, at three pictures of salvation. And the first is the desert, where verse 1 describes a parched land and a wilderness. Now, of course, the Israelites knew all about deserts. They'd spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, and even in the promised land, they were surrounded on three sides by desert. But look at the transformation in verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The barren, parched land will be like a crocus bursting into bloom. Now, in wintertime, our little backyard just down the road here is in perpetual shade. There are parts of it that don't see any sun at all in the winter. It's gloomy and very damp. It's got kind of slippery, and it's cold and gray. Now, would you believe it? I was taking a break from uh, preparation this week, went to make myself a cup of coffee, and I looked out of the window, and what did I see? There, in this barren patch of earth, a solitary crocus appeared. (laughs) And I was preparing Isaiah 35. I think it's the only mention of crocuses in the Bible. The next day, three crocuses. This morning, 12. This is a picture of what happens when God comes to save. The desert becomes like a well-watered garden. In the midst of death, we suddenly have the promise of life. Second picture, victims of war in verses 3 and 4. Now, we're all too familiar with images of war on our television screens and our newspapers, refugees sheltering in camps in South Sudan, or prisoners of war awaiting liberation in concentration camps, parents weeping for their children who've been killed in rocket attacks. So here in Isaiah 35, where people's hearts fail for fear and they suffer a complete loss of morale, God tells them in verses 3 and 4, strengthen the feeble hands, be strong, do not fear. Why? Verse 4 again, your God will come. He will come to save you. One day... All wrongs will be put right. As God the judge and God the saviour finally completes his saving work. Right now, we're very conscious of life's disappointments 
and sorrows and tragedies. We do live in a world of sorrow and sighing, and we're not immune from that. But but as God's people, we can, verse 4, be strong and not fear, because your God will come. And as Christians, we say, our God has come. So in the midst of fear, God's salvation promises rescue. Our third picture is a picture of a hospital in verses 5 to 7. And in this particular hospital, we find the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute. It's a bleak hospital with little hope. There used to be a hospital in Putney called the Hospital for Incurables. It was a place that provided long-term care, mainly for people who had suffered brain and head injuries. And they kept the name because it helped with the fundraising. It aroused a sort of compassion. They've recently, well, a few years ago, changed the name to Hospital for Neurodisability. And they changed the name because they felt it was too depressing. But that was the reality. When people were admitted to that hospital, there was no hope of them getting better. And here in verses 5 and 6, we have the original hospital for incurables. But look what happens when God steps in and God comes to save. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. God can turn around the most bleak and hopeless case. And when God comes to save, no case is too difficult. Not surprisingly, Jesus referred to himself as a doctor. Now, when does this happen? Well, verse 5 says, then will eyes be open, then lame will leap. So we need to fast forward seven centuries to that last great prophet, John the Baptist. And we're now in our second reading. John had been sent to prison, and his disciples wanted to know, is Jesus the real deal? Is he the Messiah they've been waiting for? And Jesus tells them, go back and tell John that the blind see, that the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, and just to throw in uh, something else, even better, the most hopeless case of all, the dead are raised. In other words, Isaiah 35 has come to life in the person of Jesus. Your God will come, verse 4. And that God who came was Emmanuel, God with us. And he came to save. And that miserable hospital waiting room and that despairing morgue has become a place of joy and laughter and singing. This is the third picture of what happens when God comes to save. In the midst of despair, we find hope. Aren't those three wonderfully vivid pictures of salvation? Isn't that a fantastic transformation of what happens when God comes to save? Death to life 
as a desert becomes a garden. Fear to rescue as the victims of war are liberated. Despair to hope as the incurable is healed. So now we come to the second point, and it's really just a little excursus to help us to understand prophecy in general, as well as to understand Isaiah 35 in particular. And this is what I've called the three eras of salvation. And uh, you might, uh, if you look at the blue sheet, you'll see three, three mountains there. And I think it's helpful to think of prophecy like a mountain range with three peaks. The first peak is the immediate fulfillment in the history of Israel. In other words, what was Isaiah saying to God's people in the 8th century BC? So in chapter 35, verse 2, when God comes to save, they will see the glory of the Lord. So in the immediate historical context of Isaiah 35, it's when they'll see the glory of the Lord when the Assyrians are defeated. And you can read all about this in 2 Kings chapter 19. It's a fantastic read. I encourage you to read it because it puts this chapter in context. Well, basically, the, uh, the Israelites were completely overwhelmed as the Assyrians camped ready to destroy them. And 2 Kings 19 verse 35 says, The angel of the Lord slew 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And then there's this lovely verse that says, When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. How can you get up if you're dead? But anyway, you see, what, you see what he's saying. They see God's glory. The Israelites see God's glory also when they return from exile. So that's the first peak. What's it mean to the original hearers? The second peak is the intermediate fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. And it's always important when reading the Old Testament to ask how does being a Christian affect my understanding of this passage? That we're not in the, the synagogue this morning, we're in a Christian church. Well, verse 2 says, when God comes to save, they will see the glory of the Lord. And notice the future element of Isaiah 35. I don't know if you noticed um, as Sarah read this passage to us, but there are over 30, 30 times in 10 verses, the verb is in the future. So verse 1 the desert and the parched land will be glad. The, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like a crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice, and so on. Verse 4, your God will come to save you. Now, Martin Luther once said, although we read the Bible forwards, we can only understand it if we read it backwards. And as Christians, we don't look at this passage from Isaiah's perspective, but from a Christian perspective, the post-Jesus perspective. So we're looking back. Our God has come. We have been redeemed. We have been saved. So John, in his gospel, chapter 1, writing about Jesus, says, we have seen his glory. Isaiah 35 says, they will see his glory but Christians have seen Jesus' glory. At the wedding of Cana, when Jesus turned water into wine, we read Jesus revealed his glory by doing this. And John 17 tells us that God is glorified 
in the death of Jesus on the cross. So that's the second peak or era. The third era is the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy in the new creation or in heaven. We have seen God's glory in Jesus, but as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, we now look through a glass darkly, but one day we will see him face to face. We will see him in all his glory. Revelation 21 verse 23 says, There is no sun or moon in heaven because the glory of God gives it light. So we live in a kind of now and not yet stage of prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah says, first peak, you will see the glory of the Lord. Second peak, in Jesus, we have seen the glory of the Lord. But we're looking forward, one day in heaven, the new creation will be perfectly lit up by the glory of the Lord. There will be no lighting project in heaven. Praise God. Because Jesus will be there. So, to our final point. There is one message of salvation, and that is joy. God's salvation always brings joy to his people. In verse 4, he promises that he will come to save them. And when he does so, look at verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now we have one final picture here in verses 8 to 10 and that is the superhighway. Do you see it in verse 8? A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. This is nothing like Boris's superhighway, marked by dangerous drivers, aggressive cyclists, and grim determination. No, look how this superhighway is described in verse 8. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way, capital W. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. This is the highway, the superhighway, for those who've put their trust in God. Who know what it is to be ransomed or redeemed through the death of his son. This is a superhighway marked by holiness, by peace, and by joy. And of course, this is the, it's going to Zion. It's going back to Jerusalem as God's people return from exile. That was the original description. How happy they were to be released from captivity, to be going home. No wonder they're singing. No wonder joy crowns their heads. No wonder sorrow and sighing has flown away. The Christian life is a life of joy. But there is, of course, also such a thing as Christian sorrow and Christian tears. I've wept them this week over the death of Julietta, over our broken world, at the frustration of not being able to do more to help, 
Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. He wept over an impenitent Jerusalem. And for Christians, we live in the now and the not yet of prophetic fulfillment. Our lives are a strange mix of sorrow and joy because we live in those in-between times. We know the joy of God's kingdom has already come. And we also experience the frustration and the tears of the not yet kingdom. We're not fully saved yet. We still stumble and fall. Our bodies are not yet redeemed. And if you have any doubt about that, just just look in the mirror. Well, I, I certainly find that. Look in the mirror if you're in any doubt that you're not falling apart. Paul says we groan and long for the resurrection body. But if you're a Christian here this morning, we can still rejoice. Our lives should still be marked by joy, even through the tears. We're on the heavenly superhighway. We're God's pilgrim people. So there should be a sense of dancing along the road home. Our sins have been forgiven. We're reconciled to God. God is our Father. We're on that heavenly highway to a place where sorrow and sighing will flee away. Pain and death will be abolished forever. On the gravestone of Martin Luther King is written these words. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm free at last. And one day, we will be able to say, with Julieta and with all those who have loved the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, we will be able to say, the ransomed of the Lord, not will return, but have returned. They have entered Zion with singing. Everlasting joy has crowned their heads. Gladness and joy has overtaken them, and sorrow and sighing have flown away. Thank God Almighty, we will be free at last. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Words from a great hymn by John Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King the triumphs of his grace. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Saviour come, and leap ye lame for joy. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim and spread through all the earth abroad the honours of thy name. Amen.